So, a couple of things before we start. I speak quickly sometimes, and with a non-American accent, that could be challenging at points. Okay, so just put your hand up if you want me to go a bit slower. The uh, Book of Job... <laughs> I'll go slowly. From the south, he's from the south. About uh, 15 years ago, I moved to New York, and uh, I gave a sermon and uh, a message, and, uh, and in the message I talked about writing an e email. And uh, everyone was, like, confused about why I was writing an email, and I couldn't understand why, and uh, found out later that half of them thought that I'd said, writing an emu. <laughs> writing an emu. So if you hear something from me that sounds wrong or heretical, it's only because I'm speaking fast and in an Australian accent. <laughs> my... But we will be working our way through the book of Job. In fact, by tonight, we'll have got through well more than half. So we're barreling on through it. I figure if we wanted to go verse by verse, Spurgeon style, then you'd have to put me up for about three years. And I'm open to such an invitation. <laughs> but we need to make our way through Job in a way that makes sense of Job through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'll be moving fairly rapidly through it. Is that all right? So I'm going to read two passages of scripture. Then I'll speak, I think, for about 35 minutes. And then I'll give us time for questions before 7 o'clock. That's the plan. I should probably not say that, should I? <laughs> Just leave it all rubbery. I want to read from the New Testament first, because I think that's appropriate. And then I'll pray. I'll read from the New Testament first, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. I'll read verses 1 to 4. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, says the writer of Hebrews, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Let me keep going. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Okay. And then we're going to go to Job. Job. And if you've got, is this like a, what we might call a pew Bible? Yeah. If that's the case, it's page 417. 417. And I'm going to read two chapters, so it's going to take a few minutes, but it's so good. So profound. Okay. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. 
There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of, of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was, uh, also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan said to the Lord, then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have been increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not touch, do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck them, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. When he was still speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in, the, in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they were all dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked, I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on earth and from walking up and down upon it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, though you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. 
but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women, as one the foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard all of this that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw how great his suffering was. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And the next chapter is him cursing the day of his birth. And then his friends speak. We'll talk about that more in session two. What I'd really love to do, actually, is give you a time to respond, but I don't think we just... Maybe I'll just give you a 30 seconds, just in your own hearts, to consider what has just been read to you. I mean, it's thousands of years old, and it's from God, and yet it is so disturbing. Um, and many of you know Job and how it works out, so you know it's full of potential as well. I just want to give you 30 seconds just perhaps for the Lord to touch you or raise something in your heart and mind. Shall I pray? Father, we believe that suffering is a complex matter. <clears throat> we ask why, and we don't always get an answer. Sometimes silence. And yet we're commanded to trust you. <clears throat> and we do trust you. We entrust our lives to you. We do so in the name of Jesus Christ. But be with us here now, in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, and touch our hearts in the way that you would have them touched, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so we begin uh, a weekend in the ancient book of Job. I hope spared the experience of Job, and yet um, I hope touched by the book of Job. It's a book, it is said, about suffering. But it is so much more than that. It's a book about wrestling with God. Suffering is inevitable for all of us. When I go and visit a new baby in a hospital, invariably what I say to the young mum and dad is that the child here is, is inevitably going to experience some suffering and I pray for endurance ahead of it, even though I pray for blessing for 
uh, this little boy or girl. But when suffering comes, and maybe it has come to your door even now as we speak, but when suffering does come to your door, how will it affect you? How will it change you? Are you ready for it? Are you in the middle of it right now? A Nigerian poet once said, this is one of my favourite quotes, when suffering knocks at your door and you say that there is no seat for him, he tells you not to worry because he's brought his own stool. <laughs> suffering knocked on Job's door and sat down. And we're going to sit with him over the weekend in his dust and ashes and with his four friends in order to get up again with Jesus Christ. The book of Job is a book from God, inspired by God, and it's for all those who felt ripped off by God. And you've got to get your mind around such kindness to have him inspire and include a book like this in his word. Pretty sure Muslim people don't have such a book. We do. Dr. Timothy Keller, a pastor from New York City, writes this. He says, the book of Job faces the issue of suffering with more emotional realism, more intellectual integrity, and more practical wisdom than any other book of the Bible, nor even, he says, more than any other book of world literature. You have suffered, so this book is for you. That said, if you, own, if you believe that Job is only a book about suffering, that is, how to suffer well and how to be friends with somebody who is, then you'll miss the profound meaning of this book, and I hope you'll see why through the weekend. The book doesn't give you an answer to the question of suffering, but I believe it does give you a resolution. Not an answer, but a resolution. Because Job gets up out of his dust and ashes. He survives. His faith and his integrity survive. And I believe he grows. Job has what you might even call a conversion experience. I'll show you that even in this session here. The resolution at the end of Job has brought hope to millions. It's brought hope to anyone who has prayed Job's prayers, who, anyone who has argued Job's arguments and believed the vision at the end of the book of Job. I personally have found hope in the book of Job. We're spending the weekend then sitting with Job and asking the question, is there a path then through suffering? What will get us up out of our dust and ashes? And if today this is all new for you, the concept of suffering, like it's theoretical, I doubt it, but if it is theoretical for you, then hold on, stay for the ride. There's plenty in this book. Chapter 1, verse 1, if you'll follow it. I'm going to move around the whole book, by the way, so you're going to have to decide what you flick onto when I get to it, okay? So here we go. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. We don't know where Uz was. But the story and the truths in it don't depend on our knowledge of where Uz might be. We are told effectively that Job is a good man. 1 verse 1, this man was blameless and upright, and he feared God and shunned evil. Not that he doesn't sin, or that he, have, or that he doesn't have children who sin, but he's mindful to confess and to do business with God. Chapter 1 verse 5, he really is a good man with the twin characteristics 
of fearing God, standing in awe of Him, concerned about whether or not you're obeying Him, and nervous when you don't. The twin characteristics of fearing God and shunning evil and saying no to what is wrong. Blameless and upright means that he's right with God, full of faith in God and integrity, we might say. But we know that he loses almost everything, but his own life loses almost everything in a tsunami of pain and he sits down in dust and ashes and he has no idea why he's been smacked down. No idea at all. Now, what's important in reading the book of Job is that you have a place in it. You're the reader. The reader knows why Job has been struck down. We're told in chapters 1 and 2, I just read it to you. He suffers for a very, very specific reason, a unique reason. But Job doesn't have access to this very, very specific reason. And so in chapters 3 through 37, he prays and agonizes and argues and listens and he says there's no rhyme. No reason in this suffering. There's no method in the madness. It's just all madness. In the end, he wants God to show up, which God does out of a storm, a whirlwind, in chapter 38. So as a way of getting into the book of Job, I want to ask and answer three questions that are printed. And if I can put it this way, this is just an introduction. The questions are, what are dust and ashes? Secondly, what drove Job into the dust and ashes? And thirdly, what brought Job up and out of the dust and ashes? And this movement, this movement down into the dust and up out of the dust, I believe points us to Jesus Christ, who is our hope, our path through suffering. So firstly then, what are dust and ashes? Well, dust and ashes in ancient cultures are a symbol of pain, of suffering, of frailty, of being near to death, near to the ground. It's a place of humility from which one could pray. And to sit among the dust and the ashes is a visible way to own your condition, to signify the grief, and to provide the space to pray. The closest we would get to it in Western culture would be to wear black at a funeral, or to go to our bedroom and rarely come out or refuse to eat. Perhaps it's different in the Bible to sackcloth and ashes, which is a related idea, but more, more connected to repentance of sin. Dust and ashes are first mentioned in chapter 2, <coughs> verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. By the way, when you read it, you, you, you must picture it. In order to sit with him, you must picture it. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself as he sat among the ashes. Job's three friends also sit in the dust and ashes with him. We're told in chapter 2 verse 12, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. And all the way through the book, Job speaks about the fact that he will, for example, 7 verse 21, he'll, he will soon lie down in the dust. And the same in 17 verse 16 and 34 verse 15. 
And in chapter 30, verse 19, of God, 30, verse 19, Job will say, God has cast me down into the mire. God threw me into the mud. And I have become like dust and ashes. I've become like the place in which I sit. Perhaps a reference to Genesis 3, verse 19. Dust you are, and dust you shall return. I'm reminded of the committal service in the, in the funeral service. I presume it's the same here as for me. Well, I'm an Anglican and we're used to all our words. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Of course, Job is very much alive and is hurting. But in the end of the book, he arises from his dust and ashes. It'll take time and a lot of words, a lot of words. And those of you who took the time to read it in the last couple of weeks will know how many words there are. <laughs> he endures the suffering. He endures his friend's unhelpful words, which is more suffering. And he's restored. He claims his hope in God, having come very close to the edge, and yet we're told he always spoke the truth about God. He never, never stopped speaking the truth about God. And so he does become a model for us. So secondly, what drove Job out? What drove, what drove Job into the dust and the ashes? And the answer is, at least on the surface, his suffering drove him there. And his friends kept him there. But there's a deeper answer, and you must hear it. So let's get into these chapters. It's a very ancient book. We don't know the genre. Is it history? Is it poetry? The ancients put this in wisdom literature so that we could learn wisdom. So that we could, Job 28, so that we could each assault the flinty rock with our hands. Which in Job 28 is a way of saying, I'm going to go after, go after the thing needed to get the wisdom. And like trying to find silver and gold. I'm going to go at it. I'm going to assault the flinty rock with my hands. Which, by the way, is a quest for life. That's your life quest, by the way. I've just given it to you. <laughs> Salt the flinty rock with your hand. So go find the wisdom from God. That's why it's put in wisdom literature, so that we can tunnel through for some wisdom. So first, there is Job, chapter 1, verse 1. Second, he's an honourable man, and everyone looked up to him. Later in the book, we're told, When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me, and they withdrew. The aged rose and stood. Oh, Job's in home. Indeed, in chapter 1, verse 3, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Third, he worries about his kids. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Who doesn't? Job sacrifices for them in case they sin. Fourth, he fears God. The narrator tells us in chapter 1, verse 2, this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shuns evil, shunned evil. The Lord agrees with the narrator because the Lord said to Satan in chapter 1, verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. The narrator says it, 1, verse 2. God says it to Satan in 1, verse 8. And the reader is left in no doubt. This, of course, gives this character of Job is what gives rise to the conflict in Act 1, Scene 1 of the story of Job. 
The conflict is the accusation that Job only loves God because God has placed a hedge around him. Chapter 1, verse 10. That's the only reason he loves you. Because of the hedge. That God has kept him safe in his greenhouse of happiness. The accusation is that Job is pampered and with no suffering. He's spoiled. You could argue, by the way, that each of us has a hedge around us. And you could probably think, what is the hedge around me? Things that make my life enjoyable. Things that put meaning into my life. Would we give up God if those things were ripped from us? Some of you already know the answer to that question. So Satan offers God a challenge. Not that we're supposed to get stuck about how this happened. I know some of you are really concrete thinkers. Like, what's Satan doing in the heavenly court? I'm not sure we're supposed to do that with this book, it being a wisdom literature. Um, the challenge is of Satan is, if you take away the hedge guard, the power, the prestige, the things, the honour, the Instagrammable stuff, if you take it away, you'll find out that he's like everyone else. That is, he's in it for himself and he'll curse you. He'll fall. He'll give you up. So there's only one way to find out if Job loves God for God and not for himself. And that is to take away everything else, to take away the hedge. And so the hedge gets taken away. And so suddenly and so inexplicably for Job, he is plunged into suffering. Now, you're involved in the book because you're the reader. The reader knows things that Job, and here's, here's the key to the book, he never finds this out. You know things he never finds out. That there's been a dialogue in the heavenly court about the hedge. If you're Job, the first thing that happens to you in the book, because you're not Job, you're the reader. If you're Job, the first thing that happened to you in the book is a messenger rushes to your door and presses the doorbell. Ding dong. That's the first thing you experience. Ding dong. <laughs> During World War One in Australia, the Anglican or Church of England priests, of which I was one, I am one, and the pastors were co-opted by the government. Is it the same here in America? They were co-opted by the government to tell families if their child had died of war. I think I've seen that in um, Saving Private Ryan. Didn't happen? Military does. Military does. In Australia, it was the clergy that turned up at the doorstep. This messenger is like a priest during World War knocking on the door. Chapter 1, verse 14, ding dong, the doorbell. Breathlessly, the messenger says, the oxen were ploughing, the donkeys grazing, the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one escaped here to tell you. So first the donkeys and the oxen and the servants in 1, verse 15, and then while he's still speaking, you know, if it was a cartoon, the bubble would still be in the air. While he's still speaking, he gets word of sheep and servants in verse 16, Fire, a fire from God. Then the camels get taken away in verse 17, and then lastly, and most tragically, in verses 18 and 19, his ten children in one tragic housing disaster. My son's 17, we came home from youth group two weeks ago, and he says, what about the children? He feels it, you feel it. The suffering appears to be unbearable. Who can withstand such pain? And yet, with the hedge gone, Chapter 1, verse 20, 
Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, then he fell to the ground in worship, that's the key, in worship, and said the truth. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Right. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And by the way, thousands of years ago, you were given words to say when you suffer. And I suspect that some of you have used that very verse in a season of suffering. The hedge is gone, but he remains standing. Chapter 1, verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Don't you get a second round, a second bite of the cherry? In chapter 2, Satan approaches God a second time. Skin for skin, he says in chapter 2, verse 4, a man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And in chapter 2, verse 6, you find out that God doesn't do it, but he allows it. Chapter 2, verse 6, very well then, he is in your hands, you must spare his life, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job. That's important that God doesn't do it, but allows it, as we come back to that question over the weekend, the way the Bible talks about suffering and the sovereignty of God. I believe he's sovereign. Job is inflicted with terrible sores and wounds from head to toe, and he's got no idea why. The reader knows, he doesn't know. And we're told in chapter 2, verse 8, it drove him to dust and ashes. His wife then becomes the mouthpiece of Satan. <laughs> I, 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 that's, I think that's no doubt. Chapter 2, verse 9, go on, curse God and die. It's the very thing Satan wants to happen. It's how Satan wins. His wife says, go, go on, curse God and die. But Job doesn't yield. He says, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And in those dust and ashes, chapter after chapter, we see Job confused and angry, crying out in prayer, arguing with his friends, and uh, we need the rest of the book, which we'll get to over the weekend. And in chapter 3, he laments his life and his birth. Chapter 3, verse 3, May the day of my... that the day perish on which I was born... And the night that said, a man is conceived, that that day perished, so he feels blank. Some of us have felt blank, and what Emily Dickinson called a, an element of blank. Chapter 3, verse 11, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me, a doctor, breasts that I might be nursed? And then this stunning passage for all of us who have suffered in chapter 3, verse 23. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? God took away the hedge and then he hedged me in. For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest but only turmoil. What I feared has happened. Who has not felt that in their life? It's the nature of fear to not want it to happen. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a fear. But the key is he doesn't curse God, even in chapter 3. He needs his friends to start talking and muddy the waters before he is drawn out in a conflict with God. His friends become his stumbling block, although he doesn't sin. We find out in chapter 42.
Two things come out of the chapters that follow. Job says to God, first, I don't want to suffer without explanation. And second, I don't want to suffer without vindication. I don't want to suffer without explanation. I'd like someone to explain this to me. And I don't want to suffer without vindication. Sure, if it's a closed universe, as in there is no God, then I get it. We really are just victims of time and circumstance. Mere rats in the rhythm of a universe that doesn't care. People suffer, and that's all there is to say. But Job doesn't believe that, and nor do many of you. Job knows there's a God, a just one, a sovereign one. So I want to know why I've experienced this, an explanation. My friends keep saying that since God is just, I must have sinned. And he's like, true, I'm not perfect, but the correlation isn't there between my life and the suffering I'm experiencing. Because he wants an explanation and vindication, he keeps saying over and over, and we'll look at this tomorrow morning, he keeps saying, I want to meet God, I want to have an audience with God, I want to make my case before God. I want his face, not his hand. I'm done with his hand, I want his face. And as you read, you realise that the only way this can end is for God to show up, which he does out of a whirlwind in chapter 38. Thirdly and finally, what brought Job up and out of the dust and ashes? See, what gets me up out of the dust and ashes, personally, is Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. His death is my death, his resurrection, my resurrection, his life gives mine meaning. I believe that. Job doesn't know this. That's not to say that I personally haven't wrestled with God, that I haven't had major moments of like, what the Sam Hill is going on? I have, and I will. And I don't know most of you, but I know enough to know that there are some of you in the room that have just stood gobsmacking amounts. And uh, I'm leaving on Monday, but I'd like to stay for three years and sit down with you and talk with you about it, if that's you. I haven't had such suffering, although I have had some. But Job helps me now, and he will help me when the cancer comes. See, at the end of the book, Job is restored. He gets up out of his dust and ashes. The Lord made him prosper again. Chapter 42, verse 10. Now, you might have questions around all of that. And God blessed him. People comforted him over his former loss. And he lived a long life, we're told. He was raised in that moment from his dust and ashes. God meets him at the crucible, at the lowest point, and lifts him up. Now, that's important for us who look for a path through suffering. Because you'll need one. And you'll need it ahead of the suffering coming. I mean, people do cobble it together. They do. But how much better to not cobble it together, but to be ready for the diagnosis or the grief. We may not have had literally dust and ashes, but some of us lie in bed wondering if it's worth getting up.
We don't have Job's hedge, which was taken away, but we have our own hedge. What would happen if it were taken away? You see, when suffering knocks at your door, here we go, and you say, I didn't put it there, but you know the quote. When suffering knocks at your door and you say that there is no seat for him, he tells you not to worry. Why? He's brought his own stool. <coughs> what is your hedge? Sometimes we don't know what it is until we lose it. Because you keep saying, oh no, God's my comfort. But then when the thing is taken away, you're like, wow, okay, now I, now I figured out what the hedge is. <laughs> what is your hedge? What would happen if you lost it? Job sees the vision of God in chapters 38 through 41, and amazingly, no answer to the suffering, no explanation, we'll come to that. Job hears God speaking out of the whirlwind, and God questions him. I believe they are playful questions, and yet profound. The questions at the end, and we'll look at this on tomorrow more, late morning and then Sunday morning, the questions have both gravitas, weight, as well as levitas, lightness. God shows he can and he does care, which prompts Job to say, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. You are greater than I am, and momentarily I forgot that. I want to say as a reader, understandably you forgot that. But more importantly for us, Job says, my ears, well in the ESV he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the year, but now my eye sees you. And I just help me with the NIV here for the moment, it's just a little bit more rhythmic. My ears had heard of you, but now my eye has seen you. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. What is that? I grew up in Sunday school, heard lots of words, 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 but now I have seen you. See, only after the hedge has been taken away, after the pain, after the agony, the wrestle of faith, and especially after he had seen the work of God in creation, in the vision, he says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. So he grows, even though on one level he stays the same. You're going to see that. You know, fears God and sons evil, fears God and sons evil. My servant Job, my servant Job. <clears throat> on one level, nothing's changed. And on another level, the learning is through the roof. For Job, I thought I understood, but now I understand. What an opening, a door for us to walk through. And then he says famously, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now the original language that this was written in here is ambiguous. The word myself is not in the Hebrew. But it's a verb that, the word I despise, you have to despise something. But the word myself is not there. So I despise. And the preposition, like lots of prepositions in, in, in uh, other languages, is unclear. So he despises something and repents of something. That's important to try to figure out what it is. One reading, a majority reading, a majority reading, is that he despises himself for what he said in the middle of his pain. And he repents of his overstepping the mark. In other words, he gets into the dust and ashes at the end of the book to say, I got too close to the edge. I got too close to the edge. 
But that's not an easy reading because God says to Job's friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. A second reading of this, it's a minority reading, that is no doubt a minority reading, is that he recants or despises his arguments and repents of his dust and ashes. In other words, he rejects his demand for God to justify himself. You don't have to do that. I trust you now, and you don't have to justify yourself, because I've been arguing all along. You need to justify yourself to me, God. He rejects his demand for God to justify himself, and indeed he repents of the dust and ashes which he's been sitting in the whole time. In chapter 42, verse 6, he either gets into his dust and ashes or out of them. Isn't that fascinating? Into his dust and ashes or out of them. Now, it doesn't matter too much, minority or majority reading, because either way, Job is restored. He finds his, a path through suffering. What would get you up out of your dust and ashes? That's what this weekend is all about. And the shorter answer is, only God can. C.S. Lewis wrote, I know now, Lord, why you are no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Jesus experienced pain and suffering too. He too was what you might call the innocent sufferer. He suffered because of my sin. He was consigned to the dust of the earth, placed in a tomb. He experienced death. Don't come close to it. Jesus experienced it. And yet God did not leave him there. God raised him up and restored him, for as Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So I want to conclude by praying Hebrews chapter 12 and then open up for some questions. Shall I pray? <coughs> Father, we pray that you might take our eyes and fix them on Jesus. Perhaps we'd heard of you and grew up with you and, and uh, perhaps consider you a lot. But open our eyes, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at your right hand. We consider him who endured such opposition so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. So am I right in saying we've got about five minutes for questions and we'll have more time at the second session to be finished by eight. Is that right? So, is that right? I'll just do what I'm told, Gary. Okay. Questions or comments? Yes, young man. I should put my glasses on. Yep, young man. Good. That was correct. It's, it's all relative. My head was aged and I, it got taken away from me many years ago. Um, chapter 2, verse 10, can you help with that verse? And I'm just going to read the part that I think... Um, the way I read it, you know, shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil from God? Um, that kind of goes against maybe how we think of God, and uh, I don't know if you can help with that verse at all. Maybe we're wrong about God. <laughs> it could just be tragedy. Shall we receive good from the Lord, and not only, not only that, but tragedy. The translation of evil could be tragedy. Could be tragedy. So I don't know if that helps. I mean, that could, could just be as simple as that. But that still might work against you. 
right? As in, why would God send tragedy? There, there might be some that say God wouldn't even send tragedy upon me. Well, at that point, I'd say to you, well, to anybody who thought that thought, no, you're wrong. God can send. Christ went to the cross, and the Father sent him, and uh, that was a tragedy by any stretch. That God turned up in the world and we struggle on a cross. How tragic is that? And yet, of course, this is, I mean, there's enormous things to say here. And libraries filled with the answer to this question. So, you know, it's a, this, I mean, in my mind, there's always two tracks. Um, can I, it's just a quick thought. In Sydney, a, uh, a tram just went through, a, a, like a trolley car, but it's electric, you know. No, little, I've been to San Francisco. <laughs> uh, a tram went in and our neighbour was working on it. And I said, which part are you working on? Which part of the tram are you working on? And he said, go down to George Street and have a look. That's all been put together. He said, look, get down low and look at the concrete that's there. I said, get down low and look at it. He said, I'm responsible for everything under it. All the electrics and the... Everything above it, I don't know anything about it. It's somebody else's business. Everything below it is something I know about. And I think in the Bible you do find that there's something below the surface and something above the surface. Things that are apparent but God at work. And the classic text that's used for that is, you know, you meant evil, Joseph to his brothers, chapter Genesis 50 verse 20. You meant calamity, you know, you had ill in mind, but I meant good in this moment for the saving of many lives. So God allows it all to take place. And you know that when you read Genesis and everywhere through the Bible. And yet God always has a plan for it. I guess that's one of the things we're going to wrestle with through the weekend. Is that fair? Fair. Thank you. Good man, young man. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions or comments? Or comments, by the way, you could just respond to it. What's your name, by the way? Brian. Brian. I'll see if I can remember that. I bet I don't. <laughs> with a Y or an I? Oh, with an I. With an I. <laughs> your name? No? I just wondered if you would put up that C.S. Lewis quote. Yes. That was easy. <laughs> Any other comments or questions? Yes, sir, what's your name? Uh, Tom. Tom. But I think I've met you before. Yeah. Um, Tom. How would you comment on um, the two questions God has for Satan in terms of this almost a cosmic wager? Um, have you considered my servant Job? It's almost a boast. Right. And is that just a way to introduce the story of Job, or is there... Is it? Yeah, I've always been nervous about the term wager, you know, as a God or a betting man. Um, I'm going to say no to that. Uh, uh, so, yes, what, how, is, how is it? Yes, I, I'd have to think about that a little bit. What do you think? Well, I don't know. It just, it seems it's certainly a way to introduce the story. It seems uncomfortable if we are um, dragging things out about the character of God from that question. Right. And my gut reaction would be to treat it as literature. You've got to introduce the character somehow. And it's God who introduces him with a parental pride. Look, have you ever seen anything like this? You know what? I'm pretty sure he's like everybody. As soon as the tough time hits, he'll walk away. And it's like, I don't, I don't think that's true. And, off, and it turns out not to be true. Yes, I suspect it's the introduction of a character. Well, that's interesting to think about over the weekend. If anybody's got any thoughts on, if anybody has any thoughts on that, let's keep that rummaging around for the for the weekend. Any other comments? Oh, Ken Hughes is asking me a question. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm actually quietly hoping it's a comment. End of verse ten, and it may be overly subtle. It says that all this Job did not sin with his lips. 
So it doesn't tell us what's going on inside of it. Now, I, I know the New Testament says, out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. But it's very interesting that, that it doesn't come out verbally with him. Right. So there's a genuine possibility that something's going on verbally and in his heart. Yeah. Which then, what's going on in his heart comes out of the next chapter. Yeah. Okay. That's right. So uh, that raises the question, which I'm going to think about over the weekend, as to whether or not God's comment at the end, that he has spoken what is right about me, isn't a comment about what's going on in his heart. So it's interesting. Yeah. You know, the role of Jesus in this, and the knowledge that we have, it just seems to me, you know, Paul and Romans, if we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, is that possible as long as we have a hedge? Is it? Oh, in other words, is it possible to be conformed to the image of Christ with a hedge? With hedges? Well, uh, yeah, right. That's a great question. Let's let that sit there. <laughs> I mean, if you say a hedge is something good from God that you appreciate, then most of us have things from God that we could point to that we appreciate. That if it were taken away. You know, if I found out that my four children, you know, were in a house, if I found that out, I, I, that would send me into a spiral of grief, like chapter three. Uh, and so I could say that that, that hedge, is, I mean, if, if this were not unique, it was about me too. Satan could say, he only loves you for the hedge. You take away his four kids, you know, or whatever, you know. So we've each got hedges. And yet we are conformed to the likeness of Christ. So it can't, be, it can't be true that you have to have all hedges taken away. But a lot. Maybe a lot. Yeah. And that's hard. Yeah. Maybe he... Yeah. Well, he uses all things in Romans 8. And I'm going to get to that text. He uses all things to conform us to the likeness of Christ. You know the passage? God uses all things for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose to conformist to the likeness of his son. So that means good and bad things he uses. Right. And ordinary things. Yeah. I'm going to call you a young man. Oh, young man. That was Australian, by the way. It was a bit... Uh... What's your name again? Phil. Phil. So, it, you, you gave the majority and mi minority view of Job 42.6. I thought you were going to give this brilliant third view. Oh. Well, you're going to give it to us. Did I miss that? Or are you just setting this... I'm just setting... Let it sit there. Okay. The truth is, it's a really interesting way of reading it. Uh, I despise something and repent in dust and ashes or of dust and ashes. This is really interesting to think about. I am saying it's a minority reading, by the way. Don't, don't hear me wrong on that. Um, and it doesn't matter too much because he gets up out of the dust and ashes. He's restored. But it's intriguing to think that the vision makes him go, oh, oh, the thing I said, I, I'm happy to give them up now. Uh, I, you know, I, I give them up. And it's really interesting to think if he says, those dust and ashes, they're gone now. I'm leaving them behind. So I find that minority reading interesting, although I'm not good enough on Hebrew to be able to make it, I feel like I feel unable to make a decision on it. So I'm happy to just leave it there for you. I think it doesn't matter too much how you read the book, but it is interesting. Yeah, I think we need to go on to the next one or oh, break. Is that right? Yeah. I just you tell me.
we're going to take a 10 minute break and grab coffee, use the restroom, what you need to do, and then we'll start back up in the second session. 10 minutes eight, doesn't it? That's eight. <laughs> Just joking. <laughs>